You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm Victor, and joining me is my good friend Charles. Oh. I, I mean, William. Yeah, William. Hey, hey, William, are you ready for this week? I was. Not now. Fine. Not now. Okay. No. No, 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 no. Let's just get your Charles guy on, whoever that is. Let's see. <sighs> we have big news. And we also have an interview later on in the show. But, but this is big news. So, Supermicro. Remember them? Oh, do I ever. Yes, absolutely. Okay. What do they do? What do they make? Well, they have a terrible name. Um, but beyond that, they make... Are you kidding me? It's Super... Super Micro. It's a bit 70s, isn't it? Maybe 80s at a push. It reminds I me. I think it's Dynamite. Okay. We have a. Com- I don't think it's international, but there's a UK co- company here called Car Phone Warehouse. And clearly that was a brilliant name back when phones were in cars rather than portable. But too late to change it. So there we go. I'm sure we're stuck with Super Micro. And despite the name, they do servers that I'm sure are fantastic because Apple, Amazon, uh, other people beginning with A, buy them. Except yep. maybe they shouldn't, according to Bloomberg. Oh, come on. Now, so what they do, they, they make motherboards and they make servers. And six months ago, Bloomberg ran a ridiculous story that that uh, let's let's just say is startling and seemingly nonsense that uh, all of these motherboards used in servers owned by Apple and Amazon and others had been compromised that there had been a secret chip put in place that spied and j- just trying to figure out how on earth you do such a thing like that mm. now i mean if you if you used an existing bios chip and you flashed the firmware and did something like that and the firmware didn't require it to be signed then yeah maybe you could do something you know there there have been bios firmwares in the past but since you know they they have uefi and they run their own signed and locked down uefi stuff it's it would be difficult in any case that's not what the story was the story was they actually put a new chip on that was the size of a bead of rice yes and somehow managed to sneak that in, which would require laying out the whole board all over again. Because you can't just, like, let's just insert this into a couple of traces. Yeah. Well, no, it needs to have power. It needs to have data. It needs to have data that can capture in a meaningful way all of the incoming and outgoing and write it somewhere useful or do something useful with it. Well, like, okay, so it's going to get written to storage, which is not noticeable, um, unlikely. Or it's going to get shown up in network traffic, again, unlikely. Like, you, you you could have spotted all of the ways that this surveillance was meant to happen if you were monitoring traffic. It just doesn't make sense. I would in addition like to the, to the work that it would require in laying out a board. I used to work for a company where somebody uh, stole a floor from the office building. Something seemingly impossible can be done. And it's only afterwards you start thinking that it was these circumstances that happened. So right. I would... St- How did they steal a floor well, from a building? they were actually project managing the build of it and uh, right at the planning stage. I mean, the ch- should spare this. They... Uh, they were using American contractors. They were using different plans. In Britain, the first floor is known as the ground floor, and then we have 
first, second floor. And in the States, I understand everybody calls the first floor the first floor, which makes absolute sense. But he managed, I think it was a he, managed to hide how many floors were actually being built. So the entire construction and all of the fitting out uh, money for that floor went into his pocket. Um, I right, think, so he embezzled. Yeah, fantastically brilliant idea. And he'll be out of prison soon. So, you know. Uh, one belief I, I i i can still accept that there's a possibility that something is is true uh, i i am wearisome of bloomberg and the fact that they are well they're not only silent but they also entered their own story for an award uh, during all this so they're not you know being upfront about everything uh, but no they should know. continue to have their feet held to the fire for this one but the point is that supermicro has been a little hurt by this, right? Mm. It's had repercussions. So U.S. customers and government-related clients have asked Supermicro not to supply them with motherboards made in China because of concerns about products being made in China being surveillance products. And, and that's a similar complaint about Huawei and ZTE, or ZTE as you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, Supermicro expects an almost 10% decline in revenue for January to March 2019 compared to previous quarter. Like 10% quarter over quarter is painful. Yeah, should, um, should explain, sorry, the Bloomberg thing uh, broke in October, so that would have been in the previous quarter. So it is 10% since the uh, Since the story out. broke, right? Yeah. Yeah. Other factors, obviously, but that's huge, yeah. Now, 60% of their revenue comes from the U.S., so a change in buying pattern from the U.S. has a huge impact. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're placing the majority over half of their eggs in the U.S. customer basket. And if the U.S. customer changes, then they are ruined. Yes. I mean, I should point out, um, because we keep talking about China and they've just broken ground on a a plant in Taiwan, well, you think of them as a a foreign uh, company, but they're Californian, so they are U.S. Of course they want their uh, customers to be U.S. You you sell to your local market first. Uh, so I don't think that they were foolishly overextended, but they are vulnerable to nonsense like this. Yeah. Right. Now, Supermicro has told their suppliers to move production out of China to, to address these concerns. And in addition to asking their suppliers to move, they're expanding their own production facilities, like you said, you know, in Taiwan, and they're also expanding their base in the U.S., mm. They have a, a and, uh, base in Silicon Valley. I don't know what they're expanding there for it, but it is expanding. So, Well, you know, we, we don't know if they're going to start manufacturing boards in the U.S. It seems unlikely, but they could certainly do it in Taiwan. Or Wisconsin, frankly, for that point. <laughs> Wisconsin. Oh, man. Terry Goo. Yes. Uh, right. So the Wisconsin Foxconn thing is kind of a nightmare. Yes. Um, there was a report about it. Um, I think Wall Street Journal it was. I forgot the name of the writer. Spoke to residents in the area uh, in Wisconsin. This Mount Pleasant town in Wisconsin is supposed to have this gigantic Foxconn plant and it keeps not having it. But houses have been demolished. Things have been bought back. Fields have been bought up and then leased back. Uh, and one of the people spoken as to their uh, some sort of commissioner among the council was talking about how it's just like it's an imaginary now. We're just pretending it's going to happen. They sound so low and depressed about this as as you would. Well, be. I mean, when you give up your house, basically, or you sell your house at a at a low price rather than market value, or whatever the case is, right? 
<clears throat> not saying that's exactly what happened, but you know, it's it's not great. You know, they they came in, they demolished seventy five homes. Yes. Yeah. Some are left. I don't know how many are left. Um, well, there's a great shot uh, in in not our article, but in some other article I was reading of the plant and a house that remains standing next door to it. <laughs> like you really want to have your home next door to the Foxconn plant. Isn't that what happened with Macy's, though, in New York? That's the reason Macy's has that uh, uh, corner cut off the building, because somebody wouldn't move. And it's become iconic well, now. So. so there are all kinds of, of little... Well, you, you remember the Pixar movie Up, right? Oh, yes, yes. And the intro scene of Pixar movie Up is the old man who does not want to surrender his home, and so they're building around him. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, that happens in real life, and there are a number of places in the world. You, you can find pictures online of highways with a house in the middle right. in China. Okay, just to throw this in, there are some of the bends, in, the odd bends in the London Underground routes, uh, because uh, poor landowners couldn't afford to disagree and rich landowners lobbied to get their uh lands untouched so you get sudden left turns on the yep. uh district line i think it is yeah yeah and in america in in the midwest um it's like this too you know the the all of the the county and state roads mm. wind around the farmland because the farmers are not moving right. okay. the the only thing that uh that did get to cut through were the railroads. And that's actually the history of eminent domain in the United States is the railroads. They had to find a way to write a law to allow the railroads to lay track because you couldn't just turn around the farmland. Oh, that's so interesting. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Basically, there's a lot we don't know, and farming is tough. But Foxconn have so far failed to follow through on, well, much of anything other than built a building. And right, th- they were going to build this. Yeah. What were they going to use this thing for? What was Fox kind of going to make here? Previous, were they going to make t? They were going to make TVs. Originally, it was going to be TVs. Then apparently, they, that wouldn't work out for some reason. I don't remember. Then it was going to be uh, LCD panels for phones and Macs that no longer use LCD panels. It was um, unclear. I think it was. Am I being cynical saying it was going to be used for political purposes? The probably yes. Just ignore me that allegedly all that. I'll go. I'll be quiet now. (laughs) (sighs) Wonderful. Well, Foxconn's chairman went to the White House. There's a picture of him holding up a a Donald Trump challenge coin and a Donald Trump pen and looking very happy wearing a baseball cap. And and, uh, other than that, we can imagine that, that, you know, nothing too significant is going on. Foxconn failing to use their factory in the U.S. for the things that they said they were going to. I would like to say, though, because you mentioned the, um, I'm sorry, what did you call it? The Trump um, medal thing. The challenge coin. Challenge coin. Challenge coin. I'm I'm British. I had no idea such things existed. But there's a really interesting episode of 99% Invisible, the design podcast, uh, showing how all the recent presidents have done these coins. And it's amazing how revealing of the president's personality the coins are. So I just... Urch. Yeah, he he wanted his to be bigger than everyone else's apparently. Yes, <laughs> some something bizarre like this. Yeah. Basically, the challenge coin uh, is is used as a way of you know it, it, it's it's when you meet someone 
Mm-hmm. They they may choose to give you their challenge coin if they have enjoyed meeting you or they respect you or something like this or or something like that. You know, I have I have the challenge coin of a two star general that I once met. Um, so years it's, ago. yeah, it's it was very not cool. Just presidents. Uh, it's no no no. In in the armed services, challenge coins are a thing. In the intelligence services, challenge coins are a thing. Oh, I did not know that. Okay. Have you got a yeah. challenge coin that you could give me? Uh, personally, no. I have never had one made. Although, although I know we we've had a, a sponsor of the show in the years past that could totally make one for me. Oh, okay. I may look into that. That could be kind of cool. Yes. I mean, some people give away hoodies or sell caps and things. We could have challenge coins with you. I mean, name it's a heck it. of a calling card, right? You know, here's. <laughs> here's my business card. It's flimsy and made of paper. Yeah, here's my challenge coin. Yes, and can I have it back? No, you've looked at it because I've already got got the one. Yes. No, no, no. You make up like, you make up a batch of 50 or something and give them out. But who knows? Could be fun. Anyway, I want to talk a little bit about parental controls. Okay, have I done something? Apple makes it. Yes, no. Parental controls. Apple makes... Um, you, you have done something, but it's not suitable for the content of this show. Yeah, tell me about that. Okay, yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So, screen time is a thing, right? Yeah, Apple screen yeah. time. Yes, I ignore and it, but yes. screen time became a thing because there was a, a, a swelling of news around the idea that too much screen time was bad. Sure. Now, this is an age-old notion that comes from from years and years of people screaming that watching too much television was bad. Yes, yeah, since the dawn of time, cavemen have worried about screens. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watching too much TV was bad for you, which, you know, despite what, what those people seem to have said, it tended to pretty much be proven wrong. Right. I mean, too much of anything could potentially be bad for you, but too much TV on its own was not necessarily bad. Uh, depends and, on the channel, but uh, yes, okay. Hmm. What was going on in that writer's room? No one knows. But uh, I was thinking ESPN, but okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now the uh, the the notion that too much screen time would also be bad is another concern, right? Mm. I, I think really what it comes down to is content and what content you choose to fill your head with as opposed to just staring at the glass itself is bad. And so what Apple screen time attempts to do is show you where you're spending your time and allow some restrictions to be set around that. I just told you that I completely ignore it. But as you've said that, I couldn't resist. I've peaked and I, I want to boast. Can I boast? Yeah, let me boast. Apparently, I've spent 30 seconds on social networking, 53 seconds on something just called other. And the rest of my entire time on my phone is productivity. Oh, look at me. Busy or what? Yeah. Yeah. Bow down. Everything. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. All right. Fine. Yeah. Right. There's also a so turn it anyway, off button. Yeah. Yeah. That's gone. People... People seem to think that Apple has not gotten it right with screen time, that it doesn't give enough control, that it doesn't quite work as well as they'd want. And so there were a number of applications, uh, Custodio um, and so forth, that went ahead and created their own. And in order to create their own, uh, they had to use what's called an MDM, Mm -hmm. which is a, a server, it's mobile device management, 
And when you use such a thing, a lot of your data gets routed through that MDM server. So then, of course, it can be monitored and managed. And you, you see MDM used a lot for corporate environments where the devices are corporate-owned and issued. And for Facebook-side-loading things, they shouldn't, yes? No, mm. no, no. That's that's not exactly the same Allegedly. thing. They were using a corporate certificate, oh, okay. which is slightly so different. Point. Enterprise certificate there. is not the same thing. So let's not confuse the two. Um, but MDM is also used for schools. You know, when a school has a number of devices they want to manage, they they make the device join the MDM and, and do that, especially if the device, schools own the devices. It makes sense. Hmm. Now, RPACT and Custodio and some of these others uh, have been on the App Store for, some of them, four years. That predates Screen Time, though, doesn't it? I can't remember when Screen it Time does. came in. It does. But they, they have been approved repeatedly. Mm-hmm over and over and over again using MDM. And this week, they were banned from the App Store. They were removed. And and they say, without any communication. And, well, some of them were removed in October 2018 without any prior communication. And, but, but some of them were removed this week and it, they're, they're protesting. Now, Phil Schiller came out and issued a statement saying that they're abusing things meant for corporate but our pact went ahead and wrote a medium post that says that no, they're not abusing anything. That that Apple's own documents say that when you set an MDM up correctly, that it poses little risk to users. Oh, I didn't know that part. Okay, interesting. Oh yeah, on on their blog post, they they compare the Phil Schiller statement with Apple's official support documentation, suggesting that a properly vetted MDM app poses no risk to end users. Hmm. Does that imply then that they weren't properly set up? Is that what Apple's actually saying? No, I think I think what Apple's been saying is, you know, according to Apple's own statement, was was that this is none of them are okay. That they used highly invasive mobile device management technology. So Apple's statement says the whole technology is bad, which contradicts the own support documentation that Apple has about it. Right, and it's Apple's technology, isn't it? So. Well, I mean, MDM is not limited to Apple. You can do MDM for Android stuff. You can do MDM for, for anything. And in fact, Jamf, J-A-M-F, have been advertisers here on the podcast mm. in years past. Mm-hmm. They're, they're MDM as well. It, it's just, it's, it's not that the tool is unsafe. It's about using the right tool for the job and configuring it correctly. Okay. Now, Apple's statement says that the is entitled The Facts About Parental Control Apps. And Apple says the apps were removed because they put users' privacy and security at risk. And um, and that's kind bad. of a lengthy post, actually. Well, obviously, that stuff's bad. But the question is, does MDM itself do that? And Apple's own support documentation says no. But if we read the, the newsroom post, it says, quote, over the last year, we became aware that several of these parental control apps were using a highly invasive technology called mobile device management, or MDM. MDM gives a third-party control and access over a device and its most sensitive information, including user location, app use, email accounts, camera permissions, and browsing history. We started exploring this use of MDM by non-enterprise developers back in early 2017 and applied our guidelines based on that work in mid-2017. MDM does have legitimate uses. Businesses will use them. Um, 
but it's incredibly risky and a clear violation of App Store policies for a private consumer-focused app business to install MDM control over a consumer's device. So that's Apple's newsroom post. And let's see here. Um, the Medium post that our, our pact wrote um, covers their use of MDM and point by point mm. uses Apple's own MDM documentation to contradict that. So, you know, just, just reading through this lightly, the Apple press statement says MDM gives a third-party control and access over a device and sensitive information. And Phil, Phil Schiller said, no one except you should have unrestricted access to manage your child's device. And Apple's MDM documentation says MDM cannot see personal data such as personal work mail, SMS, Safari browser history, FaceTime or phone call logs, reminders, frequency app use, or device location. So that's a kind of a pretty direct contradiction, wouldn't you say? Yes, Apple's thing seemed very reasonable, but now maybe not so much. Okay. Yeah. So Apple's press statement that I read to you says businesses will sometimes install MDM on enterprise devices to keep better control of proprietary data and hardware, but it is incredibly risky. And the documentation says when users enroll in MDM for the first time on an iOS device, they're provided with information about what the MDM server can access. This provides transparency to users about what's being managed and establishes trust between you and the users. Users understand how their devices are being managed and trust their privacy is protected. With the user-owned deployment, iOS MDM offers personalized setup by the users and transparency around how devices are configured, along with assurances that the user's personal data won't be accessed. So again, do you see any kind of, kind of opposition between those two statements? No, I'm reading between the lines as far as I can, and uh, that would be no. Okay, so um, Apple's clearly going to go, whoops, we were wrong, and then put them back. No? I mean, either either the Apple MDM documentation is incorrect, or Apple's recent statements and and the knock-on removal of these apps from the App Store is incorrect. Right. So let's sort that out for them. What do you think? Which one do you like? We'll do that. I'm not positive I know which one is correct. I would prefer to believe that the MDM documentation is correct. Hmm. I would rather believe that because that would say that people who've been using MDM have been doing so in a safe way and that, that user device location hasn't been shared and people's privacy has been protected. Um, the other way suggests that the documentation has been wrong and people have been doing this with with uh, all kinds of risks that they were assured by Apple weren't there. Yes. None of this is a good situation, William. No, I don't know what to suggest, except obviously uh, switch off screen time because that's um, that's I can do that. That's useful. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you can do that. Fine. Okay. Okay. Right. Right. Netflix. Netflix rolled out adaptive, high quality audio for Apple TV owners with surround sound. So Netflix is launching this as high-quality audio. Mm -hmm. It's crisper sound for viewers with surround sound systems. Basically, the compatible videos are going to be labeled for Dolby Atmos or Dolby Digital Plus 5.1, Netflix said. And this includes videos that only have a 5.1 emblem. Those standards are both supported by Apple TV 4K. Only Digital Plus 5.1 is available on the Apple TV HD or the fourth-generation Apple TV. Right. Um, 
The quality is adaptive based on bandwidth. And so you'll get bit rates anywhere from 192 kilobits up to 640K, which Netflix says is perceptually transparent. Well, Atmos will start at around 448 kilobits and reach as high as 768. Atmos requires Netflix's premium plan. So you'll be putting out $16 a month for that. But that's the same that's also needed for 4K. Um, they expect these bit rates to evolve over time as they get more efficient with their encoding. And this, this could offer Netflix an advantage. But what I want to point out is that this is not exclusive to Apple TV. It certainly works with Apple TV and Apple TV 4K, but I did a quick quick look around just to see what other devices are available that support those. And what I found was that the Amazon Fire TV uh, stick, 4K stick, mm-hmm. supports Dolby... Uh, the, the Fire TV's 4K stick supports Dolby Atmos. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, is that new? Do you know? Uh, the the four K stick is is several months old at this point. The um, the Fire TV Cube also supports Dolby Atmos. Okay. All right, and so a Fire TV stick is fifty bucks, and a Fire TV Cube is one hundred and twenty bucks. Right, so somewhat cheaper than Apple TV. But since I've already got yeah. an Apple TV, I don't have the 4K one. I do whatever the one before. Fourth gen. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I like it very much. Uh, but I'm unlikely to change uh, to Fire because of this. But, you know, yeah. at some point. Well, I just I, I decided to go look at Roku. Oh, yes. Ro- Roku has a number of models and ranging in prices. They have a Premiere, and then above the Premiere, they have a Premiere Plus model. And the Premiere... Is, is the most affordable 4K model that I can find that they offer. It is um, $39, and it uh, they claim it's the easiest way to access 4K material. And just looking at it, it has Dolby Audio, which they don't exactly specify what that is. That could be anything. And Dolby Atmos pass-through over HDMI. So they also, for $39, support <laughs> Dolby Atmos. Okay. This doesn't seem terribly relevant, but it's on my mind, so I, and I have to share it with you. Last night, well, I watched a film on my Apple TV uh, using the AirPods 2. I've often done it with AirPods 1, and I tried it out when I got AirPods 2, but last night I was just enjoying the film, and I was really conscious that the sound was substantially better. There were things in the soundtrack I hadn't heard before. So, uh, uh, sound is good. There you go. That's good Good headphones, oh. good speakers matter. What I want to point out is that doing a Dolby Atmos system is kind of a huge expense, right? You need to have a receiver to decode it. And you can get those, you know, used around $300, but normally they cost around 700 or so and up. Uh, you also need speakers that are, are Dolby Atmos compatible, which means what you need are... <sighs> either a large array of speakers, you know, 7.2 or so forth, or you need to have, uh, because there's the front channel, the rear channels, and then a bunch of side channels involved. Hmm. Um, and also, ver- you know, vertically, you have the, the around listening height, and then you have above kind of thing. And the way a lot of speaker manufacturers, like Monoprice, for example, get around this is by putting drivers in that fire up to get that top sound reflected off the ceiling. And so it's it's sort of monetarily intensive to do this. 
Are you saying... But, ha- I mean, I'm wondering how many people actually have all this stuff. So are Apple and Amazon all that's just pretending they've got it and figuring the three people who've got the equipment uh, probably won't get around to trying it out? No, no. I, I expect that they've gone ahead and got the codex involved to be able to do it. But doesn't it seem a little bit silly that you're going to splash out big on the receiver and speakers and all of that and use a, a $39 streaming stick to do it? Well, if it works, I'm fine with that. I guess, yeah. <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this this portion of the Apple Insider Podcast. Coming up next, we have a segment that we recorded at MoogFest, and it's going to be great. Stick around. I'm Victor, and I'm here with Hirt Bevins. Yeah. Hey, Victor. Good to see you again. Yeah. It's been a while. It's been a year. I, I Crazy. <laughs> like how time flies, right? Yeah. I was like walking around like this American tobacco campus again. I'm like, well, it, like it's been a year, but it feels like time hasn't passed. Like it immediately fell at home again. Time like, is yeah. elastic. It, it is. It, it <laughs> just stretches out. So you were emailing me a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. about something that you're doing with the Apple Watch. Yeah. So I bought the Apple Watch when it first came out. Because I'm like always doing like research and how can I use new technology or new interfaces to enhance how a musician can express himself or feel more uh, empowered or feel more expressive. And so when I bought the Apple Watch, the first one, it was a cool technological concept, but it was slow. It couldn't do much on the watch itself. Um, the connectivity with the phone was super limited. So I created a prototype um, and actually talked to Apple at the time so that you could use the Apple Watch to control synthesizers. Um, and why did I think that was interesting is because we have all these physical touch, defi- uh, all these virtual touch devices now with virtual knobs and screens that you have no tangible, like... There's nothing tactile yeah, there. Yeah, not, nothing tactile there. But on the watch, you've got the digital crown, which yeah. is like a knob. And it is right there on your wrists. So I thought it would be really cool if you could use that to control the couple of things that you as a musician find extremely important to you mm-hmm. so that it, you can immediately get to it and not have to fumble around and leave your own like private space. Like there is only a limited amount of space that you consider I'm in my bubble. And as soon as you start reaching out your hands or like leaning over the desk or having to step away, as a musician you sort of step out of your focus while the watch is right there. It's in your private space. So fast forward, Apple Watch 4 came out. And it's, that's it, not that long ago. It's, it's a little more capable than that first version, isn't it? It is incredible. Like, the screen is beautiful. It can run, like, significant apps on the watch. And the communication with the iPhone is tremendous. So I got the Apple Watch 4 and did the same prototype just late at night. I was like, hey, let's try this out. And immediately got this working. Like, okay, there's something here. And as soon as I started sending like test versions out to beta testers, a whole bunch of musicians got inspired and sent me like new ideas. And it like grew much larger than just controlling knobs with the digital crown. And so that's an app called MidiRist that's out now. Um, 
one of the things that that I'm really excited about that I added, which I hadn't anticipated initially, is transport control. So transport control allows you to play, record, stop, rewind, undo while you're recording. And a lot of musicians nowadays record in a home studio and they're basically engineers, mixing engineers, recording engineers, musicians, arrangers. They do all at the same time. And personally, as a musician, I always find it very jarring to have to step to the computer and like start the DAW or use an external controller. A DAW is a digital audio interface that you can... Right, the digital audio workstation. You can record in. And having transport control on your wrists, you, you just... It's as if you're using your instrument. You just tap it and it starts recording. And you don't have to move to another space. You don't have to use another mechanism that you have to think about. And so I'm, that's one feature that I hadn't anticipated that I'm super excited about. And then the next step, which I think is going to be really like big, people seem to have trouble latching onto it <laughs> because I think it might be a little bit too early, is Siri control over all those functionalities. I, I personally had never used Siri before because I always feel that it's too slow. It's like I, I can type something faster than ask Siri how to do it. Interesting. But speed is not always what is important, certainly not like when you're recording. And like if you're sitting there with your hands on your guitar or whatever you're using as an instrument, being able to say, hey, Siri, press record, Let's see, like someone's, there we go. <laughs> waiting to see which one is going to get prompted yep. here. <laughs> so, and like a few of your listeners will have the same situation. <laughs> I recorded this video on YouTube and everyone that's watching is like, no, no, no it went off. <laughs> so being able to say that while you're ready to record is so natural. Even, even if it takes like two seconds to start, doesn't really matter if you would be working with a sound engineer that's in another booth and you have to communicate over the microphone say okay i'm ready to record let's go it's even slower than that so just sitting there and being able to just get in your mind space and say okay now i'm ready press record and there you go that's so amazing powerful yeah powerful because the the problem that i see with the the old way of doing things is that just as you said, taking yourself out of your personal space, you're taking yourself out of the mental context, exactly. right? You're prepared, you're ready to play, yeah. but now you've got to go be a producer. Now yep. you've got to go be an engineer yep. as opposed to the expressive artist that you were trying to be. Yeah. So how does MIDI wrist work in practice? Or is it all digital crown operated or is there accelerometer or touch or what? So there's five pages that you can enable or disable to focus on the individual uh, functionality that you want to that, that you want to use like the primary one that I started with is that you have four knobs that you can control with a digital crown and you can either select like you can select any combination of them so it also allows you to have macro control which means like okay let's say that I want to move up the level of three tracks at the same time you can just tap on the three knobs that you want to move and then use a digital crown to slowly fade them in or fade them out which is extremely useful when you're doing overdubbing or multi-tracking. Like, okay, I want to balance out the levels a little bit while I still sit there with my guitar without going to the computer and manually like and use the mouse and like get oriented on the screen and like change your whole reference point. Um, so that's like the main page I started with. 
then there is a transport control that allows you to do play, record, stop, rewind, and on some DAWs also undo, redo, save um, on an additional pop-up page. Then there's a bunch of switches that you can tap, um, either momentary or toggle switches, which could be to solo and mute things, or it could be to turn on certain effects if you want to. So these can all be MIDI mapped. Um, then you also have, that's like a very good feedback that I got from a few users. They were, they were like, hey, I actually also want to have an XY pad because you have like an XY pad, right? You have a touchscreen. Yeah. It's an XY pad. Yeah. And so there is an XY pad that allows you to, to do that. Um, and I feel there's like another one, but I... Do you use the Taptic Engine at all? Do you use the, the yes. long press, the hard press? Yes. So it uses... Also, so it uses various degrees of the haptic feedback, which is really nice. Which, which like the Apple Watch Four made it even nicer with the like, tactic feedback on the digital crown itself. Um, so we've got two levels of tactic feedback: the digital crown, where you can feel that it's like slightly stepping through things, which ma- makes it feel ever so slightly more real. And then it's a, it's a stepped knob. It's well, it's more like you feel a little bit of friction. Mm-hmm. Like it makes it real instead of just like something that slide like glides through. Yeah, it makes it more tangible. Um, and then the haptic engine to confirm every action that you do, which is great when you're like focusing on something else. You still feel like an additional confirmation. Okay, this happened now. I tapped here. Something happened because I can feel the feedback. So it uses that haptic engine. One of the things that Apple should improve, though, and I'm still, I still haven't had the time to wrap that up, is currently, whenever you use a Taptic Engine, it actually goes through the alert notification system. And so it makes sound also, mm. meaning that you have to put your watch on silent to actually just focus on the haptic feedback. It would be real nice if that could be technically decoupled. There's no reason why that shouldn't be possible eventually. Right. That was a choice that was made long ago and it's carried on. No one's one's presented a good case for why it shouldn't be yet. So Apple has been pretty flexible in making like changes like that. Nice. Yeah. What I really wanted to ask you, I've been Mm -hmm. thinking about this since we last spoke, is about interface design. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it a little bit last year when we were talking about you know, the the Model D and some of these other kinds of, of applications that you've written to replicate older synthesizers. Right. But interface design is one of those things that, that Apple nerds always obsess over. Mm-hmm. And we, we had a big shift in the landscape from scoimorphism mm-hmm. in iOS 6 and before yeah. to, to this very minimalist, flat. simplified, flat UI from iOS 7 and later. Yeah. And I was just talking with a good friend of mine about how there's something that's been lost in yep. in what I would say is accessibility. Yep. There is, just like with language, like there is, we, we attach a whole bunch of implicit meaning to things that we've come to love and learn over the years, like certain words, certain phrases. The same thing is true for shapes and visual representations. The fact that a knob looks like a knob conveys a whole bunch of things to you. It means like you can turn it, it's got a range, it allows you to control something. A circle doesn't convey that. Like you'll have to come up with another way to convey to the user, you actually can like turn this thing. It's like a, a ranged control. 
And everyone makes up their own way of doing that, meaning that you have to train your users to use your specific idiom. So even though humorphism might not be modern in a way, it still conveys a whole bunch of information that is implicit in what like, is rendered visually and removes the need for documentation and removes the need for people to have to learn something all over again. So I'm, I think that maybe like over the next few decades, we might converge to, and we already are, like knobs are being represented as a sort of pie chart Yes. That, 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 that you go through. Um, there's a whole bunch of standards that are starting to emerge, but there are not standards yet. But as soon as they become, they'll sort of become their own skeuomorphism again. And people like will, will probably get, get away from 2D. Like, what will happen if it becomes three-dimensional VR, AR control? Like, do you really want... You see, you see these AR interfaces where people are using virtual sliders in front of them. That's so archaic for three-dimensional <laughs> spatial control. Why would you want to use a two-dimensional slider that's projected in the space in front of you while you have a three-dimensional area to work with? So I think we'll always have these kind of legacy design aspects that carry on. And trying to reinvent the wheel is not necessarily, I think, the best service you can do to your users. If you want them to be productive. Like on a 2D surface, we know what knobs look like. It's just that's just my point of view. Let's yeah. just make them look like knobs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're right. When you just mentioned the pie chart representation, I, I can think of like four different apps that all use four different ways of trying to, yeah. to fill in how much of it the range is filled. Yeah. And then they throw a number on top of that because it's not clear nope. anyway. Nope. Uh, the old simple knob with the pointer. Exactly. It's just a little dot. It's fairly kind of obvious. Exactly what it does. But, but all of this stuff is learned, right? We learned that from something. Yeah. We learned that from some physical product that we yeah. had. And, you know, we, we use those things as conventions, as shorthand, exactly. because that learned knowledge is there. But what happens when we go to something that's gesture-based or VR-based, like mm -hmm. you just said, and none of that learning exists? So what, what do you think about gesture design and, and VR design where there isn't that learned background? I think we'll, we have a long, long way to go as like humans to figure that out. <laughs> I, I, I did a little bit of work on that with, um, there used to be a little, it still exists, there's a little device called uh, the Leap Motion Controller mm -hmm. um, that is now integrated with VR and AR headsets um, because it seems to be a good fit for that particular solution. Um, but I, I built also a music like, controller app with that and it allows you to manipulate control signals in 3D space by using gestures. And I found that it's really hard to come up with a collection of um, motions that don't conflict with each other, where you can be absolutely confident that the gesture that you produce as a human, like the motion that you make will have the exact intended result without getting false positives. It's one of the most frustrating things you can have. I go, I'm going back to the musician's mindset, like you want to change the volume on one particular track 
and you're changing the wrong one, or you want to re press re press record and you press stop, or whatever. Like those kind of things, they completely mess with with your being in the zone. Right, and and for someone who just is using their phone and doesn't do music well at all or right. anything like this, it's it's the equivalent to typing and having autocorrect replace everything <laughs> you've typed with something nonsensical. Yes. It's just more frustrating than it could be. So I think there's a lot of research to be done there. One of the things that I started converging to is that you need reference points. Even though you're in a fluid three-dimensional space where you can do whatever you want, it's easy to get lost into that space. So having physical reference, tactile reference points, um, to me, seem like a good stepping stone to, you know, to be... Uh, to get confirmation of what you what you're doing, and to be uh, comforted in the action that you're undertaking. Um, so what I started doing with Elite Motion is to actually use yourself as a reference point, is using your own fingers as a starting point. Like, what happens if you if you touch your thumb and your middle finger, and then use that to initiate an action? It it it's a little bit like playing a flute. Like you press down, and you know that you're gonna play a particular note, and then from there on. You can gesture in 3D space and and be confident that the actual action that you're undertaking is based on a physical reference point that you have full control over. That's just that's just a sliver. Let's say that's one, <laughs> it's one of the things that I've like sort of started experimenting with. Yeah, you know, <laughs> we we talk on this program about augmented reality because that's mm -hmm. one of Apple's focuses. Yeah, and. So far, augmented reality as implemented is holding up a phone or an iPad at mm -hmm. a square table and yeah. then seeing things projected on that table. Mm -hmm. And I I'm pretty confident based on what I've heard. We, we know that Apple is working on their own AR headset. Yeah. When they do that, that's where your, your gestures and things like this are going to come into play. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm sort of – are you excited about that? Have you given any thought to what you'll do with that when it's available? I'm going to experiment the hell out of it. Um, I'm super excited about AR, actually, yeah. not about VR. I think VR is cool, mm -hmm. but I think AR, and then this is now, again, I, I always approach things from like a creative point of view because I'm, I'm a programmer that creates things, but I'm also a musician, and uh, like visual arts interest me a lot also. What I think that AR will allow people to do is to be super creative with how the world around them corresponds to the intentions of their art while still being in the real world, not necessarily being transported elsewhere. Like, I still believe like in the power of like a performance, a real life performance where you have that connection of people that look at each other and you can look each other in the eye and you can see like body language and you can see how your audience reacts. You can, the audience can see how they share the space with you. But being able to use AR to augment all of that and to pull people into your magnificent world and not just like visual AR. Like it, it would be awesome if it like goes towards different sensations where it, it, it's like smells would come into play or even like temperature or uh, like 
maybe full body sensations like i don't know how, how many years down the line but you can already like go to theme parks where they do that mm. where you have like films that are being projected and you can experience speakers in the seat and yeah, vibration in the seat exactly. and but having something like that that tickles more senses while augmenting the current reality i'm really excited about that that's just yeah that's me <laughs> <laughs> well that's that's what i wanted to hear because i think interface design has for years been stuck in in you know pointing device mm-hmm. and and then we got touch and I, the way that I've been thinking about this is is that you know we had we had ten years of command line mm-hmm. and computers were very very expensive before that we had punch card computers yeah. were ridiculously expensive you know only universities could own them then corporations then yep. then uh, then home computing and with each interface change. The, the prices come down and more people gain mm-hmm. access. So we had home computing, then we got uh, then, then we got portable computing with laptops, then we got touch, and now we're sort of entering this voice and augmented reality area. And you're already sort of touching on voice with MIDI wrist. Yeah. And I'm I'm sort of trying to figure out whether both AR and voice succeed or or if they both become as dominant as touch has become. Or if if voice becomes the dominant thing and AR becomes for shared experiences that are special, or how do these things come together? I think that every UI and UX interaction serves a specific purpose. The command line hasn't disappeared. I use like it. It, it used to. <laughs> no, 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 let's be real about this. People that used to use a command line were a select few people that could afford those machines and that were in that technical domain. Currently, people that are using command line are still technical people that want to get specific tasks done. And there's way more of them than there used to be when the command line was invented. So that particular interface still exists and still has a purpose for Mm -hmm. specific tasks. I don't think that the mouse is going to go away uh, or like a a pointer-based device where you want very specific control over one particular pixel and like super precise having something that allows you to do that not your finger because your finger is not precise it's it it's going to serve a purpose continue to serve a purpose just like books continue to serve a purpose i i think that each user interface interaction has their own strengths and like positives and negatives they don't necessarily have to like cancel each other out like voice is awesome but i don't want to use voice when there's someone else around i'm always like what if i'm bothering them right so there's a social so aspect there's a social it. aspect of voice like and, and and there's also like ar you have to set up a whole bunch of things you have to have the technological infrastructure currently and it's probably still going to remain that way for a while at least have something strapped in front of your eyes or maybe eventually inserted in your brain or whatnot. But you still have to have that thing present. You can't just like, oh, I'm at the beach on AR right now. Mm-hmm. It's going to require some kind of a setup. Like a proper VR system is, is, is involving. Like if you want to really, even the simple ones, even like the PlayStation VR system, which is probably one of the simplest, simplest ones to set up, you still like you gotta set up that space, and you gotta have line of sight from the camera to the headset, and you gotta be able to move around without like t- 
touching anything or knocking anything over. Um, it's, and you are going to use, actually dominate that part of your house or wherever you're, you're exercising that particular action. Right, you that becomes to, a dedicated space. Yeah, you have to be able to do that. It's, it, if you go into a VR interaction, you, well, actually, I don't. Maybe some people do, but I feel very bad if my partner is right there and I'm just sitting there with a VR headset and it's like, I, I don't, you, yeah, you, you just be here. I'll do my thing and I'm not aware of your actual right, existence. Right, because you had a shared experience yes. and then you broke the shared experience yes. by separating yourself yeah. away from it. So I think all these elements have their own, you know, particularities to them. And we'll continue to, to experiment with them. <laughs> I, I think a lot about voice as, as in some point, maybe replacing touch. And I think about it not for replacing all uses, mm -hmm. but in terms of making computing more accessible to a wider range of people. Yeah. You know, by having cheap smartphones available, true. it means that people who formerly had no access mm -hmm. to the world's libraries or the world's information or even something as simple as the train timetable yeah. now have access. Yep. And that, that voice enables people who are otherwise functionally illiterate mm -hmm. to use these smartphone devices and navigate information and have it read to them and be able to respond to their own commands. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's... Yeah. it's um, you know, it's certainly not there yet, but I feel like that kind of control is, is just as empowering as your, your example where you say, totally. you know, voice assistant who shall not be named because it'll trigger everyone's phones yeah. again, um, start recording. Yeah. Right? That's a simple two-line command. Yeah. But it changes everything for that artist in that moment. It does. But to me, it, it only works if, he, if that artist is not in the presence of other people. Like we actually just witnessed it, like the voices that will not be named. Just the <laughs> fact that I, I said that is creating a problem for the, the people that are here right. around Knock us. Knock on but listeners also, who are after the fact. But also your listeners, if you keep that section in or maybe beep it out. Oh, I'm keeping it. Keeping it in. <laughs> like it, it's got a real impact, which like you, like you said, has a social impact. So maybe we're not there yet. Um, I, I, I didn't have the time to read this, but I just like saw it pass through my newsfeed um, yesterday, I think, where scientists were able to translate thoughts into articulate voice commands. So maybe that is just a segue into going into that straight connection where like, Audio isn't necessary to formulate those desires, but the actual uh, neural synapse energy is sufficiently well interpreted to trigger like those commands or desires or searches without without having to bother everyone that is like in the same space. Yeah, I read a, a few more sentences about that. I okay. also missed the whole article, but yeah. the, the the gist of it was that they were able to tap into the, the, the brain mm -hmm. in a way where when a person, it, it's not about just thinking the words, it's about 
making the effort to speak as if you were whispering. Okay. And and maybe you don't even voice the the thing, but just by making those thoughts like you're whispering, mm -hmm. it triggers the muscles involved and all right. of that. And those signals get interpreted. Interesting. Okay. That makes more sense. Because I was, like a few years ago, there was like um, a headset that came out called the Muse. Mm-hmm. I have um, one. Yeah. I have one too. <laughs> the only real use that they could find for it is like relaxation. Meditation. Meditation. Um, it's still interesting. It, there, it, was, there was one year where they embedded it into the front of sunglasses so oh, that really? instead of just wearing the goofy headband, you could mm -hmm. wear the sunglasses huh. and, and look like you were wearing standard nice. Ray-Ban Wayfarers yeah, 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 yeah. and be meditating. That's <laughs> <laughs> fun. <laughs> But you're yeah. right, yeah. I started looking into that. Like you, you could actually get those signals out and start working with them, but there's so much noise, it's hard. Right, like trying to quantize is... anything useful out of that is... Yeah. I, I think what, what I've seen come from that kind of work has been not just trying to interpret and quantize around the noise, mm -hmm. it's been to try and train the user to focus to be able to generate cleaner signal. Right, right. that's what their sole application is about that yeah. they currently have is calm your mind and you will hear birds and you will hear the sea and make leaves bristle in the wind. You, you've you, used this one, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. And if your mind is not calm, the storm sets in and you're like, you gotta be calm, meaning that you're even less calm. <laughs> and then that whole storm comes up. Oh my God. The thunder crashing. And <laughs> <laughs> like, calm down, mind. Calm. calm down, calm down. <laughs> it's like, it's like, Yelling at a child, you're out yeah. of control. Yeah. That doesn't help you get no. any more in totally. control. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, wow. Well, what what should we look for next from you? Because we've been talking all about MIDI wrist. What mm -hmm. else are you working on? Oof, so many things. I'm I'm working a lot at Moog on our new synthesizers. So we just released the Moog One polyphonic, first polyphonic analog synthesizer that Moog has made in a few decades. Um, was involved with the whole team, like well, the whole of Moog basically worked on that project. It's been like more than six years in the making. Um, that's still being worked on by everyone. So that's a big focus of what I'm also involved in. I'm also working still with Roger Lin. So we made the Linstrument together a few years ago. We're working on a new project now together, which sort of merges the work that we've done with Linstrument, but also Roger's legacy in drum machines, and come up with a product that combines both and sort of like caters to the next generation of what drum machines could be. Um, so that's active, ongoing now. Prototype exists, and we're working on it in my spare time somewhere <laughs> it's i can code on it now because there's a prototype so whenever there's like an hour here and there yeah okay let's do this now um yeah those those are the highlights um i'm one of the things i want to do is and there's been um there's been rumors like flying around so i've i've heard it, it's been published on the web that next version of mac os will have uh Siri voice command shortcuts. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to create a version of MIDI wrist that runs straight on the computer where you can use either uh, the ear pods or just talk in the room. And you don't necessarily have to have an Apple Watch or an iPhone, but you can just talk straight to your DAW and, and 
and set up all the commands that you want to set up just by talking to your computer. Um, I think that's going to be like revolutionary. Once people can use that in their home studio, set up macros, even go way beyond like uh, transport control. Like it's being able to set up your favorite effect chains, being able to uh, load certain projects, being able to manipulate, you know, uh, manipulate m tracks simultaneously and perform edit operations while you're not touching you know, the actual DAW. That, I, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of speechless, but <laughs> that's, that sounds like a really incredible use of, of shortcuts. Yeah, so I was hoping, because I was talking to Apple about that, hey, I tried to use the Siri prototype I did on the watch and the phone on the Mac, but I don't see any of the Siri interfaces here. And then they were like, yeah, not yet, but WWDC dot dot dot. <laughs> it's about as much of a hint as you'll ever get. <laughs> so, and it's been published now, so I, I can talk about it. Yeah, so that's going to be exciting. And I'm really excited to go to WWDC for the first time. Oh, good. Yeah, I'll be there in June. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. Cool. Well, we'll have to talk to you after you go and, yeah. and hear all about it from your experience, totally. from your point of view. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm rarely been so excited about it. Like, I don't even know. It's not a conference. It's like <laughs> I guess it's an experience. And like, some people talk about Coachella, and some people talk about like Burning Man. And I'm like WWDC, nerd Coachella. <laughs> it's the software engineers mecca. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well. We're going to look at, I'm going to tell everyone that they should go ahead and look at, at Moog Music and okay. find out more about Moog One. And, and where should they go for find more about MidiRist? We should check out it on the App Store. What the else? App Store, um, I have my company's website is uwyn.com, so uwin.com slash MidiRist. But you just search for it on, on Google. It's the easiest, right? Like type in MidiRist and all the answers will appear to you. <laughs> <laughs> and the heavens will open and yeah. your eyes will be lifted. Perfect. <laughs> Awesome. Thank cool. you so much, Thanks Jared. so much, Victor. It was awesome. All right. Charles, where can people find you on the internet? This, let's just, this is not going to be a thing now, okay? <laughs> I know it's just a this Charles episode. is. Every Charles I know, I like, but I'm not one of them. <laughs> so, okay. Is there All actually right. a Charles in your mind, or did you just pick a name out of the air? No, no, no. I'm just picking names. Oh, okay. That's, is that better? Is that worse? I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. uh, I am at W Gallagher on Twitter, and I'm also William at AppleInsider.com. I love getting emails. Slightly stacked up at the moment, having to reply to some, but I'll get there. Sorry. How about you? Where are you? I'm VMarks on Twitter. I'm Victor at AppleInsider.com, and I've enjoyed doing this with my good friend, William. Cool. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Great. Right. And I have a big red flag from Mike asking me something, which probably means uh, I need to go do that. Uh, who's the interview with? Oh, can I, st I can stop recording? <laughs>